Welcome to the Fully Restored Podcast. Christians often struggle to talk about areas of deep hurt like trauma or abuse, shame or betrayal. These are deep soul wounds. Friend, Christ came to not only heal us from our sin, but from our soul wounds as well. My name is Kristen Klaus and I'm a licensed professional counselor and author. And my guest and I are here to walk with you on your healing journey. We see you and hear you. Friend, if you hang with me, apply these truths to your life, you will be on your own path to a fully restored story. Grab your coffee, tea, or favorite drink, and let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Kristen Klaus, and you're listening to the Fully Restored Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Anna LeBaron, who has a powerful story that you will not want to miss. I am so grateful that she is here with us today to discuss her life story. Now, your story may not be what hers is, but family dysfunction, unhealthy religious beliefs, and abuse are what many of us have experienced. Today, you're going to hear on a story of how God walked with her and through her journey of being fully restored. Welcome, Anna, to the Fully Restored Podcast. Thank you, Kristen. It's a pleasure to join you. And I hope that your listeners are ready for a wild ride. Yes. So before we jump in, I just, I'd love to share some fun facts. So the first one I want to share is you are now a semi-retired yaya, Greek for grandma, living the RV life with your son and daughter in love. Yes, that is something that very recently came about. My son and daughter-in-law decided they wanted to live the RV life and travel the United States. And when it came time for me to sell my house, they said, would you join us? And I was more than delighted to do so. And I literally had to part with about 95% of my earthly belongings in order to make this happen because my room in the RV is eight by eight feet. And so I say this, I'm living the eight by eight feet life. Oh, wow. That is a small life, but it feels a tiny life, but we, but we're we're mobile. Yeah. I was going to say filled with great adventure. Yes. And my daughter, my granddaughter is like, she's two and it's the perfect age. She's such a delight. And that is part of my restoring story. I love that. So that just kind of segues right into, Anna, tell us a little bit about yourself, the work you do in your family. Well, right now, my five children are all grown up. So I'm an empty nester. I do have work that I do. I'm a part-time chaplain. And I also do a lot of work with authors and publishers to help them either write their books. I do coaching about that. I also work with publishers and authors to launch their books when it's time for those books to be launched out into the world. So I do consulting for that. And then I also lead launch teams for that. So it's, it's fun and exciting work. All of it is, is part of my restoration. The fact that I get to do work that makes my soul come alive is just such a drastic change from the past 40 years where I have worked at some soul crushing jobs. 
So let's just go right in. Okay. So Anna, could you take us back to your childhood and share with us about your family of origin? How was your life impacted by the choices of others? Let's just kind of start there and see where we end up. Okay. I was born and raised in a violent polygamist cult, which means my father had 13 wives and I have 50 siblings. So there's 51 biological children of my father. Plus I have five more siblings that my mom had when she entered that marriage. So I have a lot of siblings and a really big family and a very large extended family because of the polygamous lifestyle that my parents lived as part of the fundamentalist Mormon religion that they practiced. So I want to just insert here for any of your listeners that might be part of the modern day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's very important to differentiate between the fundamentalist Mormons who practice polygamy and fundamentalist Mormons is how they want to be identified. And the people who are part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints want to be identified like that. And so I differentiate between them by saying those things. Um, And also to differentiate between the way I grew up and the way most LDS people live today. So that's important distinction that I want to emphasize for your listeners' sake. Um, So I grew up in that. My father was a cult leader. He was known as the Mormon Manson by the news media outlets that would report on the atrocities that he was responsible for. More than 25 people ended up dead that he ordered the hits on, and then his cult members would carry them out. These cult members that I'm talking about are my family, family members. My dad was eventually arrested and put in prison, tried and convicted, even though he never killed anyone. He never pulled the trigger on any on anyone, which is why the Mormon Manson made sense, because it was like uh, Charles Manson. He died in prison when I was 12. And then I have uh, siblings and family members serving life sentences in prison for the hits that they would carry out that my father ordered. And I also have several family members that were tried and acquitted for hits they carried out. So my family of origin was very chaotic. We grew up with with no sense of stability, no sense of security, in abject poverty. My father was wanted by the law, both in the United States and Mexico. So our homes, both in the U.S. and Mexico, would be raided by the FBI or the Mexican police as they searched for my father and other cult members who had carried out those hits. So that was the life that I lived. We moved in the middle of the night all the time, just trying to stay ahead of the law. It was the life I knew as a child. The first hit was carried out when I was three years old. And so we began living life on the run at that age, at that very formative age where, you know, it just um, became, I was diagnosed as an adult with anxiety that's triggered by post-traumatic stress. And at the time when I heard that, I was surprised because I thought post-traumatic stress is for soldiers, you know, but based on the life that I lived, the anxiety that I experienced up to today, it's, it's not something that kind of just goes away. It made sense that with the life that we lived as children, constantly moving, constantly on the run with no stability, no sense of belonging, no sense of home or hometown. None of that happened 
in my childhood. I want to pause you there before you jump into more. So you talked about the anxiety and the PTSD, you know, at three years old, that was when, right? That's what you said at three years old. That was when you guys were on the run and, and all that. And the thing about, because trauma is my area of specialty, the thing about memories is we think of memories of pictures and images, but memories are not always pictures and images. Memories are in our senses. They're something we feel, a smell, a taste, a sound, seeing something like seeing somebody um, with a beard or, or things like that, and they trigger in us. And so people don't always understand why am I being triggered right now? What is going on when we don't know what our trigger, I do trigger mapping with people and help them to understand like, this is your triggers and this is why in relation to the trauma that you've experienced, which help us, you know, you've done work for many years on, on your healing process here, but just for the listener that may be saying, oh, you know, I have anxiety associated with my trauma getting to that root and finding those trigger points. And then how do we deal with that? And learning healthy coping skills are all real important. But here you are as a child. This is the life that you're living and feeling your life is in danger, having uncertainty, being on the run. How many years did that go on for? Until I ran away from home when I was 13. So about 10 years. But the trauma didn't stop when I ran away from home. It just became a different kind of trauma, a different kind of uncertainty, a different kind of instability. And then, you know, a lot more, a lot more things happened. You know, I, it, there's so much detail, so much happened in my life before I became an adult that was just way more than any one person should have to bear up under. I ran away and to get away from the cult. But actually, when I ran away, I didn't even know I was part of a cult because that was just our life. That was the life I knew and accepted. And this was it. I ran away because like I said, we'd moved around a lot. When I ran away from home, we were living in Houston. But prior to that, we'd been living in Denver and my father was in prison. And the man, his right-hand man that was in charge of my father's family while he was you know, locked away, he was a very, very abusive man verbally abusive in every way you can imagine. And we were used as slave labor in the appliance business that he was running in Denver. Well, during that time, my mom moved our family to Houston, where another man that was part of the cult was in charge of the Houston appliance business, because that's how our family kind of supported themselves. We were spread out all over the Southwest United States with used appliance businesses in each city. And so we were living in Houston under the guidance of this other man that was part of the cult who was actually kind and good to us. And we were paid for our work. I mean, $5 a week when you're 11, when you've had nothing your whole life, you feel rich. So I would save up my $5 a week. And then, you know, after five or six weeks, you could go into Marshall's and buy yourself a pair of Gloria Vanderbilt jeans, you know, with that little white swan, you know, stitched on the pocket. Yeah. And then save up five, you know, five or six more weeks. And then you could go buy yourself a pair of Nike tennis shoes, brown and, you know, tan and brown with that little swoosh on the side. I was like styling at that young 12 year old age at that point, because in Denver, 
where we were living before, we were dumpster diving for food behind the grocery stores. And we were dumpster diving in the Goodwill boxes for clothing. Whereas in Houston, we were paid for our work. My mom could shop her groceries in the store. And we felt rich for the first time in our life. Well, after my dad died in prison, which happened while we were living in Houston, the man in Denver convinced my mom to move us all back to Denver. And at 13 years old, I, I thought to myself, we move around a lot and people are shuffled everywhere. I don't want to go to Denver. I want to stay here in Houston where Mark is nice to us and pays us. So I ran away from home and I called Mark's wife, Lillian, who is my half sister. And I said, whispered on the phone, Lillian, I don't want to go to Denver. And she said to me, start walking. And so I hung up the phone, walked out of my house wearing my Gloria Vanderbilt jeans and my Nike tennis shoes and, and started walking the three to four miles. Well, it was a little bit, probably four miles to her house. She picked me up after I'd been on the, you know, on the go for about three, just a little over three miles. So if you do any kind of walking or running, you know, that just a little over three miles is a 5k. So I call that my 5k to freedom because she picked me up and then hid me at another sister's house. My mom came looking for me that night. My sister woke me up, shook me awake, told me to go through the window and then hide in the backyard on the other side of the broken fence and said, go and scar through the fence and stay there until I come and get you. And then she lied and told my mom I wasn't there. And even though my mom couldn't find me that night, she packed up all my other siblings and uh, drove back to Denver again, without telling them where they were going in the middle of the night, hush, hush, the same way every other move we'd ever made just about. And I got left in Houston. And eventually my sister, my other sister came and picked me up, put me in a hotel for three days and hid me to make sure that I wouldn't get taken back to Denver. And so that began my life in Houston with my sis- half-sister and brother-in-law, Mark and Lillian, which was the most stability I'd ever had. Mark became like a father figure to me. And they enrolled me in a little Christian school that was just down the road from their home because they thought, even though they still had the fundamentalist Mormon beliefs, they thought that this little Christian school would be the lesser of two evils compared to putting me in public school and me learning about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So the Christian school it was, and that's where I came to know Christ and became a Christ follower. But I didn't want to tell my sister and brother-in-law at the time because I was afraid that if they knew I had become a Christian, that they would send me to Denver. <laughs> so, so that began part of the restoration story for me. So I want to I wanna go back because I feel like there's so much that we didn't talk about. So going back to your family members and being in Denver and, and you talked about there are different places. So when you were little and how old were you again when your dad went to prison? I believe I was 11. 11. Okay. So from that up until 11 years old, you were in Denver that, that time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so as you were in Denver, was it like, a community of everybody lived in the same neighborhood. What was that part of your life like? Well, usually two or more of the wives shared a home. So my mom and two of her sister wives and about 15 children, maybe 20 children would share a regular single family dwelling 
I mean, I looked up on Zillow, one of the addresses where we lived as children with my mom and her two sister wives and 20 children. It was like an 11 to 1300 square foot house with a little basement. And we were all literally piled on top of each other. And like, you didn't have your own room. The children, all of us, there was a big pile of blankets in the living room. And at night you would go and find a blanket and fall asleep on the living room floor without even a pillow, anything, unless you were lucky and happened to have one. And you would just kind of dogpile with whoever you happened to be friendly with that day (laughs) and didn't fight with. We weren't allowed to play outside because that would draw attention from the neighbors, undue and unwanted attention. Sometimes we could play in the backyard, but we had to be quiet. If there was like good fencing where people couldn't see, we did a lot of indoor games. We played endless rounds of four day long rounds of Monopoly. Every card game you can imagine, you know, I'm, I'm a whiz at speed cards, you know, (laughs) you know, we, so we had to entertain ourselves and find ways to make life bearable. And so some of my memories of doing all that are fun memories with my siblings. And then of course, I remember the fights too, knock down drag outs, you know, with half siblings that were just being ornery or just weren't very friendly or whatever. <laughs> and what were the ages of the siblings that were in the house? Uh, living we with ranged, you? I mean, my dad had 50 children, so we were all stair-stepped, you know, and even some of us are just months apart. And it just depended on the configuration at the time, which wife my mom lived with, because it changed and you know, everybody got shuffled around. And as soon as you got old enough, you would be sent off to some other city to go work in the appliance business. As soon as you were old enough to produce, you were taken out of school and put to work. And what age was that, that they considered you old enough to produce? For the boys, usually around third grade, they could put the boys in the appliance shop and teach them how to strip an old appliance of all its good parts. And when the girls, you know, the girls would get put to put to work at a young age, taking care of the other babies that were born. And so we became little mother's helpers at a very young age while in the home, whichever adult was taking care of the kids that had a nursing infant or whatever, we became the mother's helper. And then when those mothers get put to work in the appliance repair shop, then they would send us with the mom and we would be the, we would care for the infant or the child until the child needed to nurse. And then we would take it to the mom so the mom could take a break, nurse the baby and hand it back to us. And so at age eight or nine, 10, I was a mother's helper. And then as soon as you got old enough to be put to work, the girls would get put to work washing and cleaning and painting the appliances because they're used. And so we would touch them up and paint them and you know get them ready to sell. And so every child labor law in the country was violated in our childhood. We would work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day, except Sunday and all summer long. And I'm thinking about as you're talking about this, you know, because you also mentioned that you guys would dumpster dive for food. So basically, you guys are free labor. And who is making the money off of this? Who is prospering off of the abuse that happened to you guys? Well, the man in charge in Denver, well, my dad, well, my dad was. My dad profited a lot when he, while he was in prison, a lot of the money that was made was used for his legal expenses. In every organization, in every group, on every playground, 
everywhere, there's a hierarchy. And in polygamous families, there's a hierarchy. The prophet is the one at the top and gets all the good food. I recall times where my dad was in the home. I only was in the home with my dad that I was aware of twice. I met my father when I was nine. But I recall when he was there in the home that time, they were cooking him steak and potatoes. And we were eating beans and rice. And we ate beans and rice every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day in, while we were living in Mexico. That was all we could afford. And they're making him steak and potatoes. And we could smell it, but we could not have it. And we knew better than to ask for some. So the prophet, the higher ups in my dad's cult were the ones benefiting and getting all the good stuff. And then the favorite wife of the prophet, the favorite wife of the other cult leaders that were part of my dad's organization, you know, they're in the, with the wives, there's a hierarchy. And the, usually it's the first wife that's the favorite one and gets the favored treatment and her children get the favored treatment. So when my dad was in prison, my dad's family got, we were reduced to nothing status. And Dan Jordan, who was my dad's right-hand man, was the one in Denver. He got all the benefits of what we were producing and his favorite wife and his children were the ones benefiting. Once in a while, they would come in, you know, on a Saturday from, you know, 11 to three and work and scrub a few machines and work a little bit. And then they would leave. And usually they came in after having McDonald's and we would get their little extra French fries they didn't want or something. It was so unjust and so unfair. And it was something that happened in Denver when uh, at the beginning of a summer, Dan promised all of us warehouse workers, if you'll work really hard and make a lot of money at the end of the summer, I'll give you all $50 each to go buy new school clothes. And considering that we were dumpster diving in the Goodwill boxes for clothes and very rarely had clothes that fit properly, we were always embarrassed at school because you were in school for a little bit of time. And just the idea of getting new clothes that fit and were, you know, fashionable for the seventies, you know, was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so awesome. So we worked real hard all summer. And at the end, that $50 never materialized. And I was very bitter about it. And it was compounded by the fact that the next Sunday when we met in somebody's home, because that's where we met for church, quote unquote, his two daughters, you know, one of them that was right, that was three days older than me. So we're the same age, basically. His daughter walks in wearing new church clothes and I'm in my rags, basically. And I was so, so upset by that. And it caused bitterness of soul. And that I had to just swallow down and I'm just like 12, you know, but the injustice of it was so, oh, it just overwhelmed me. And as a child, you recognize that. Did some of your other siblings recognize it or were they going along with it? No, of course, everybody recognized it, but you weren't allowed to complain. You weren't allowed to say anything. You weren't allowed to even voice any negative emotion. It was just not permitted. What would happen if you did voice? Oh, you were just told to stop complaining. This is, we're doing this for God's kingdom. But that event, as bitter as it caused, you know, just in the inside of me, that was the catalyst 
when we were in Houston and my mom wanted to take us back to Denver, I recalled that bitterness of soul and said, no, thank you. Not just no, hell no. I mean, I didn't say hell at the time because I was, you know, 13, but that was how emphatic I felt about the idea of moving back to Denver. No way. I liked Houston where Mark was kind and paid us $5 a week for doing the work. And that's where you, we left off of that is, you know, that your mom left with your siblings. How many siblings were with her? By that time, about six of her own 12 children were still living at home. Plus she was raising children from one of the other wives that had died from cancer. And she was also raising children of another wife of my dad's that had committed one of the murders and was sentenced to prison. So my mother had a lot of children to look after. And so her and all those other children went back to Denver, went back along with with a couple of the other wives and their children, because Dan Jordan convinced Mark or convinced my mom and the other wives that Mark was leading Earl's children on a path to hell because Mark would let us go to the movies and listen to secular music and had us going to school. And Mark had started a little private school in his garage so that we could, the teenagers could go to school half a day and then work in the warehouse the other half of the day because Mark wanted us to be educated. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to pull us out of school completely. So he started a little private school in his garage so that we would have a little place to go. And then my mom just up and left all of that good stuff happening in our life. Even though we're still in a cult, we're still part of a cult. It was still the best life we'd ever had. And my mom just so brainwashed. Yeah, that's the control aspect of abuse. That's the control aspect of being dependent and not having a voice and not being allowed to have an opinion. And part of that abuse, as you know, Um, but the listeners may not realize, is also that you don't trust your own judgment. And so everybody else has to make the decisions for you and you just follow along because you're not smart enough, you, you don't know enough, or you're not spiritual enough. And that was what was used to control in your situations. Right. I always say we didn't have a voice or a choice. Yeah. Well, I want us to pause right here because we have just filled so much information here and we have so much more to talk about on it, but we can't do it all in one podcast. So we are going to continue next week with the second half of Anna's story. And remember friends, nothing or no one is beyond restoration with our Jesus.